We are in chapter 17 of John. <laughs> so we uh, have already completed the uh, Jesus' prayer for what's coming up before him that very night in the next few hours and into the next day. And really over the next three and a half days as he is going to not only get through this trial period, but also the three days and nights in the tomb. And so we're going to... Uh, See him complete that prayer, desiring that, that the Father glorify his Son. And again, calling us to remembrance of the glory we're talking about is the glory of being back in the Father's presence. That that glorification is not just the events at Calvary, but the events at the empty tomb, and then even further, the events of the ascension into heaven. For that is the place where he, that prayer is fulfilled. It's not really fulfilled completely at the resurrection, but really it's the ascension that Jesus Christ is praying for, which necessitates the resurrection, which, of course, you can't have a resurrection until you have a death. And so this is Christ's prayer to the Father regarding himself. We then saw... For several weeks, uh, the prayers for his 11, and we're going to see a little bit of that still at the end of chapter 17, uh, for his 11 most intimate that are there with him during this prayer time. And as we uh, saw again for that, he wanted them to be set apart, to be sanctified. He wanted them to participate in, in uh, his calling to share the gospel to all men and to be sent out ones. And then we also looked at their uh, distinction from being uh, new, now members of the family of God uh, in the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdoms of men. And so we have uh, considered these things. We've also related them to some other portions of scripture. We come now to his prayers uh, for those who will believe in verses 20 and following, and it uh, is uh, really just 20 through 23. It's really only four verses. As we're going to see, the last few verses are going to transition back to the 11 disciples, and we've already referenced that a little bit several weeks ago. Uh, it begins by saying, I do not pray for these alone. That is the 11. Uh, that is not all that Jesus is concerned about keeping. Remember, he had prayed and said that I have kept them uh, while I was here, I gave, them, I gave them all they needed, and I've kept them, and I haven't lost any of them except for the one who was destined toward that. Uh, and so we have him now praying not only for them, his immediate associates, his immediate followers, but also for those who will believe in the future in me through their word, through the word of the apostles. And we have their word. While you have not heard their voice, you have heard their word. And their word is the scriptures you hold uh, from their pen, from their speech that was written down perhaps by an amanuensis, a kind of secretary. Um, and so we find that we have their words, and this is the impact and the, and, the, and the importance of the preservation of God's word. We spoke uh, last week about the distinction between the words of God and the word, capital W, Jesus Christ. And not to, uh, that we don't worship the Bible, but we see an immediate necessity to preserve it. For these are the words of Jesus' 
associates of Jesus' followers who communicate this. And, and so we recognize also that the Holy Spirit moved and carried them along, is technically the, the term there, inspired them, so that it breathed upon them is, is really what that means, that God breathed upon them, that what they wrote were the very words of God. And so we have an opportunity to take God's words and communicate them and that men might believe and that they will believe in Jesus Christ by the study of God's word. And the word of God says that it will not return void, it will not return empty or vain. That as we give out God's word to people, that this is the, the strength of our mission. Uh, this is the, the means by which we are communicating Christ. The power of the gospel is the blood of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. Uh, but the manner in which we communicate that is the word of God. And so the scriptures that we have, and we communicate them that men might believe in Jesus Christ. Not believe in the word, uh, the, the Bible, but rather to believe in Jesus Christ through the Bible. We come to now, what is, this is who Jesus is praying for. Let's talk about, and we're going to spend some time on what he prays for us. And so here we are, uh, hours before we find Christ being uh, maltreated, the hands first of his own people and then the Romans, that as he is contemplating what is going to be coming up in just a few hours, perhaps even a few minutes, that on his mind and in his heart is not only the 11 that he knows are going to be impacted that night, but you. You who will believe in him are in his prayers. And so I encourage you to put your name there if you believe in Jesus Christ. Put your name in that sentence because that's who he's praying for. If you are a person who believed in Jesus Christ through the word of God, then he is praying for you. I'm also praying for Kirk Westlink. Not just Paul, Peter, James, John, the other Judas. Not, not just these guys, uh, Matthew. Not just all those guys, but also praying for those who will believe. That we are on his heart and mind, and I would contend that that is going to be the case from this point forward, uh, and, and in fact has been in the situation for some time. Remember that it was Jesus who, in John chapter 3, that communicated that he was sent to save the world. He's communicated that consistently throughout his ministry on earth, that he came not only to Israel, but to all men, that whoever believes in him. And so we are here. This is our place. This is where Jesus prays for you. I've sometimes been taken to task uh, for praying in generalizations, and this is obviously a generalized statement. But we're going to pray for, and I did it this morning in our prayer time, and we're going to pray for our brethren throughout the earth. Well, you don't know who they are. I don't need to. The one who needs to know who they are is the one who I'm praying to. And while specificity in prayer is beneficial, 
more so for us than for God, um, because we're asking specifically and we can anticipate response specifically, generalized praying has its place. And those who press us towards specificity say, well, you can't just make pray in these general terms, uh, don't understand the knowledge and power and the person of God that we're praying to. That I can pray for the believers, the ones that are undergoing persecution, whether violently, whether subtly, or anywhere in between. I can pray for them in general terms, and God understands. And he knows who they are, whether I do or not. In this situation, you might say, well, Jesus knows who he's praying for. I don't know that in that capacity right there, there's several times where Jesus makes it very clear that as the God-man on earth before his glorification, that his knowledge was limited, even of his own coming. And so he, but yet he also had supernatural knowledge, which uh, was evident when he was introduced to Andrew. I, when you were under that tree, Andrew said, oh, you know what happened under the tree? You weren't there, but you knew. And so certainly there's that aspect, but it's ultimately who we are praying to that determines that. And so we set this parameter, and, and we go through the Psalms, and we say, uh, we see a generalized statements, and those generalized statements are important. David doesn't go through and list all of his enemies by name. He lists them by category. Here, these people are, are speaking evil of me, who I've done nothing evil toward. Here, some of my own household are moving against me. Here, these people I'm running away from when I really want to serve them. And he speaks in categories. He doesn't necessarily name Saul. He doesn't necessarily name uh, Absalom. He doesn't name these people that were telling lies about him. He doesn't name them in in those psalms. He gives them in general categories of those that were against him. And he asks God to defend him there. And those are precious to us because those general categories allow us to put ourselves in that text. We can put ourselves there, can't we? Because I can say, well, I have enemies. I have, and just in the general category of the needs, I have this need. I have a similar situation. And these generalized things allow us to put ourselves in that text. And that's exactly what I've asked you to do in this verse, is put yourself in this verse. When John, at the end of this book, says, well, we can't write down everything um, because he taught so many things, you know, we're not going to see a list of every Christian on here. Because you know who the list of Christians is? It's not by election. It's not by predetermined, pre-science. It's whoever believes. Those general categories are precious to us because now I can believe. Whoever believes in him through the word of the disciples, I'm praying for. You can put your name down in there if you believe. If you trust in Jesus Christ, your name belongs in this verse. And I'm so glad there isn't a list of names here. I said, that would have been a really long book. (laughs) Exactly. But it could have been done. If God had a specific people who are going to be saved that he knew all from eternity past. But that's not what we find in God's word. And so we can put ourselves here if we will believe, which is a choice that we make. Uh, 
we have an avenue, and that is the scriptures that we invest ourselves in, and then we find the object of our belief is Jesus Christ. And remember, we are moving from his works and his words to him himself. This is the ultimate salvific belief, is not in the words. The words are the means to believe in the person, Jesus Christ. And please distinguish that, that there are lots of people that can believe in the words and not the person, Jesus Christ. So it's believe in him through their word. And so that's who we're talking about. I rejoice that I can put my name there uh, and that anyone can put their name there if they choose to believe in Jesus Christ through the word of God. Verse 21, what is it that God desires for us? We're going to see... Uh, Several things, two particular things, and really, and we're going to look at a third. The third one, I'm probably not going to be able to spend a lot of time on this morning, uh, but the third one is just as important. It's just that we've already studied it, and that is that love. But we're going to look first in the order that Jesus gives them. In verse 21, it says that they may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And we're going to come to this idea of oneness. And I want to develop this. And this is Jesus' prayers that we are one. And these kinds of verses are frequently used by ecumenical groups. This is, well, we should all be one big, happy family. And it doesn't matter what you believe. We should all just get together because we all believe in God. Never mind that we all define God differently. We should all be one big, happy family. Because we all believe in God. And what is the underlying element of this? Is that we should be one. We should be one. We should be one. And they keep calling us to unity, 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 unity. And that is uh, a biblical concept, but not unity outside of truth. We do not sacrifice truth. And I'm going to use the word sacrifice, not compromise. Because compromising gives you the idea that you can still hold it and participate. That somehow I can engage people who are teaching error and I can hold this, but I can compromise it a little bit so that I can do this with them. I want you to understand that when we do that, we are sacrificing truth in the name of unity. That is not what Jesus is teaching here. Let them be one. How? As I and the Father are one. This is the example. Not unity at the sacrifice of our principles, precepts, uh, practices. No, no, no. How is Jesus and the Father one? Well, I want to look at several ways. Number one, I want, which I've just referenced a little bit already, is unanimity. All these are going to be unis. Unanimity. There's a big word. You, oh, man, pastor, you keep using those big words. Well, it's good for you. Okay? You didn't come to Sunday school, some of you, so now this is your school. All right? So unanimity. What is unanimity? Uh, if something is, an, is, is unanimous, it means that we all agree, right? Unanimity is agreement of opinion or ideas. We have the same Thoughts. That is, we have an agreement to a truth. Jesus and the Father were one. 
They had unanimity. They, 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 they had the same truth. And that is the oneness that should be within the family of God. And this comes out in many portions of Scripture, but none higher probably than the book of Philippians, where it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We should have a mind and a thought process. You get to Philippians 4, it says, dwell on these things, meditate on these things, set your mind on these things, things which are from above and not things that are below. We should have a one-mindedness within the church. We should have an agreement to what is truth. Because the Father and the Son had agreement. We should be one as they are one. And so there should be a level of unanimity among the church. Now, do we expect every one of you to cross every T and dot every I exactly like me? No. But we have an authority, which is God's word, that we all ascribe to. And we say, this is truth. Little t. Jesus is the truth. Capital T. And that we are following the words of God, that we might follow the word of God, Jesus Christ, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that we come to this and we, have, we should have a oneness, an understanding of God's word. And this is borne out in other scriptures. says, listen, we have one spirit. We have one Lord. There should be this oneness among the people of God. But it is not oneness at the sacrifice of truth. It is oneness rallied around truth. That our focus is inward and not outward. It is inward toward the truth, not outward to, okay, I have this truth, now where can I dabble over here and still be connected to this truth? This is the attitude I find among many Christians. I'm going to hold to, these, to the Bible, and then I'm going to turn myself away from the Bible and look out here at the world and see what their wisdom is and see how far I can stretch and still hold a little bit of the Bible and grasping after this out here. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about turning our focus away from the world and turning it upon God's word and fully embracing it with all that we have. That if that is our mentality, that it will impact the world much more than us trying to dabble in the world and keep one hand on the truth and stretch ourselves out. And here's the way they qualify that. Well, I'm doing this to reach them. I can't reach out to them. That is not what Jesus taught in this verse. In fact, he says quite the opposite. The world will believe that God sent Jesus if we are one, like him and the Father are one, fully embracing truth. That the more we live the truth of God's word, the more we are committed to it, the more we are committed to it, the more it is powerfully impacting upon the world. Sacrificing it for the sake of reaching others doesn't work. It is not a biblical concept anywhere. We do not sacrifice truth to reach people. And you can put compromise in there if that makes you feel better, okay? That you, I still hold to the fundamentals, but I'm out here. 
Oh, that we'd meditate, that we'd make our focus, make, it is God's word, it is God's word, it is God's word, it is God's word. I want to put it into practice in my life consistently in every relationship at work, in my work ethic, in my home, my family life, in my personal life, in the disciplines of life, in my parenting that we're talking on, on, on this evening, uh, that we want to focus it on God's word. But no, we want, well, I hold the essentials. Then I want to go out here and dabble in, in what the world says right and wrong is in the law. I want to go over here and dabble in what science says right and wrong is. I want to dabble over here and say what psychology says. I want to dabble over here and I'm trying to stay connected to this while reaching out that way. And God tells us to reach into God's word. That when we turn ourselves around and we all focus on God's word of bringing it into our lives, that is going to bring unanimity. But the fact is, too many within the Christian community have their backs turned on God's word while they're stretching and looking towards the world's quote-unquote wisdom, which is no wisdom at all. Oh, that we would center our thoughts, meditate upon them, memorize them, study them, that we might be all experts in God's word, that that is our attention, that is our desire, and it captivates our lives. This is how the Father and the Son are one. There's also another aspect of this, and this is going to sound wrong, just like unanimity sounds wrong a little bit, because I can't we disagree on some things. Uh, some things, depends on what you mean by some things. If you're talking about some things out of the Bible, I would say probably not. You're talking about some things about how you should live that out versus how I should live that out, then we can discuss that. Because I don't expect you to live my life, and I hope you don't want me to live your life. Okay? We come to another one, and that's uniformity. Oneness is often talked about as uniformity, and that we try, when uniformity, you know what a uniform is? Everybody looks alike. It's like, Pastor, are you really saying we should all look alike? No, I'm talking about uniformity of appearance. I'm talking about uniformity of behavior. We should all act alike. That is, we should all be striving after righteousness. We should be putting God's word into practice in our lives consistently and like one another. We should be doing our activity and, and we should essentially be defining our social and personal culture by God's word. It should describe how I'm going to live. In every part of my living, I am going to try to submit myself to God's word. This is what Jesus did. He, we've already studied this extensively in Jesus' explanation. Are you obeying my commands? If you love me, keep my commandments. If we're all keeping the commandments of God, then there should be uniformity. So if all the churches are doing it God's way, they should all look surprisingly alike. Not their building, but what they're doing. We should all be studying God's word. We should all be putting it into practice. I should be able to go to a church in India, a church in Kenya, a church in Haiti, a church in Australia, a church in, in Israel, and a church here, and, and find largely expect the same. Not necessarily the same exact order of service or the same instruments, but I should find the same desire and thirsting after righteousness that we're all trying to be obedient to God's word. 
and that we can use God's word to confront each other, that we are off track of the culture of the Bible because we're embracing too much of the culture of the world. And so I can go to India and I can say, that's not right. And they can come here and say, that's not right. If right afterwards they have a scripture verse and a passage and a principle that to confront me with. We can say, that's not right. And we can agree, that's not right. Uh, and, and we'll strive to correct that. And we've had that happen. We've had Pastor Reddy come here and say, why aren't you doing this? And then I go there and I say, why are you doing that? Of all things. And why? Because we're using God's word. And oh, we must be ready to not compromise. We must be ready to conform ourselves. That's what uniformity requires is confirmation. We have to conform ourselves to righteousness by the standard of Jesus Christ, by obeying his commands. Did the son conform himself to the father always? Not my will, but yours be done is going to be his prayer here in Gethsemane. That's conformity. Conforming to, this, to Jesus Christ, uniformity is I'm going to become like Christ. But we, instead of conforming ourselves to Christ, are compromising ourselves with the world and trying to keep a foot in both worlds in our practice. And we, we want to test the parameters. And yes, there's a parameter of of, of this, Galatians talks about it, that we're not legalistic. We understand that there is, there is uh, an expectation of righteousness, that it is, that this boundary of our liberty is love, the love of God, love for one another. And you have liberty within that to move and, and to live differently. You can live on this side of your liberty, and I can live on that side of my liberty, but we're not going to violate the, the law of love in any of it, because that is the confines of liberty of the Christian life. But too many Christians are trying to find where that boundary line is and if they can put one foot in and one foot out. Instead of, again, turning our attention toward the center. Oh, I want the fullness of righteousness in my life. I don't want a little righteousness. I want to embrace all things that are righteous. I don't want this stuff in my life that draws me away from Christ. I want that which draws me towards him always, and that should always draw us toward one another. And again, it is righteousness, a unity, a uniformity with the Father that will attract the world to us. One of the greatest statements that I hear over and over again, and it's great and it's effectual because it's true, is when people say, I don't want anything to do with Christianity because they're all hypocrites. What do they mean by that? They mean by that you claim righteousness and you live unrighteously. And they know it. And I try to change their mind because I say, well, I would invite you to evaluate my life. I can't answer for all these other people, but I can tell you that I'm trying to live the true Christian life. God has been faithful to me and blessed me. And I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I, I invite you to examine me. I got a phone call this week. Was it this week? Monday. And the gentleman says, well, you know, he knows I'm a pastor. I'm talking to him. And he says, well, you know, and I didn't say anything. He said, and I said, well, uh, he said something about not being able to meet. And um, I said, oh, is that true? 
And he says, well, and after about three statements, he realized that we were still meeting. And here's his statement. You take this for real. You take your Christianity for real. Because in his eyes, churches that just can't wait to surrender their services aren't real. Now, that's not me making that observation. That's him making that observation. The world recognizes righteousness when we are uniformly committed to obeying the Father, of living out our faith. They see it. We've had others in the past who said, oh, you guys are all about money, and, and then they come and it's like, when's your pastor ever going to preach about money? When's your offering? Because that's not what we're all about. But a lot of churches are, aren't they? And they should rightly. And so they have a, a right argument because there's too much hypocrisy out there in the Christian community because we aren't uniform in righteousness. We do not have a uniform, a, 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 a pressing desire to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Rather, we want to we wanna give lip service or a little bit of activity to righteousness and the rest of the time reach out, where how, how far can I dabble in this and dabble in that of the world? Well, there's another white oneness that I want to talk about. And I have several others, but I'm only going to do these three. Uh, I have another oneness, and that oneness is intimacy. It's not the uni. I um, skipped the other two unis. And that is intimacy. Because this one um, is fully evident in this verse. Our, is Jesus in you? Is the Father in you? Are we intimate with Jesus Christ? Is he someone you visit once a week? Or are you intimate with him? You see, a oneness here is the concept of a husband and wife that two will become one. And, it is, and you might say, well, wait a minute, the two are one. Yes, spiritually before God, uh, you're still two individuals. You can accept Christ and he can live like the devil. Um, but physically, you are one flesh. It doesn't say one spirit in the Bible. It says the two will become one flesh. And this is a picture of that oneness that we're talking about here in the spiritual realm. That God tells us to be spiritually one with the Father and one with the Son. The Son in us. And if the Father's in the Son, the Son is in us, then we know the Father is also in us. Now I'm not talking about you being the carrier of deity. That somehow you are representing deity. But rather that you are intimate with him. And when you hear people say, have you accepted Jesus as your personal Savior? They're trying to communicate intimacy. And that is really what oneness is involved with here. And that's expressed by Jesus Christ about the being in one another. And we understand, hopefully, that that oneness of the flesh, that consummation of the marriage, is, makes us that one and that, that, that in, in complete intimacy. And the Bible talks about that, that wife, your body isn't yours, it belongs to him. Husband, your body's not yours, it belongs to her. 
Now translate that spiritually in your relationship with God. We all claim God is ours, but do we really live out that we are God's? We belong to God. He can do with us whatever he pleases. That level of intimacy, I fully surrender myself to you. This is the intimacy that Jesus Christ is talking about here, the oneness. Are we truly intimate with God, Jesus Christ, and the Father? We can go on and include the Spirit, which we're going to look at later on in the Gospel of John. But we're going to focus in on this oneness of this full intimacy. This is what he wants for us. He's praying that you, I am convinced he's praying for all of these unis, for uniformity uni, and, and all that, but he is praying for intimacy. Do, are we intimate with God? Do we have spiritual openness to him that all that I am is his? All of it. That there is no closet in the house of Kirk that he reserves that God's not allowed into there. Now, there are places in my house that I'm not going to take you into because those are my closets. You know, they're not really open for public inspection. And if they did, I'd be embarrassing. Um, but spiritually, do we have those before God? Most of us do, but we shouldn't. We want to be one with God. By the way, my wife gets to go. She's not public. She goes into all those places, and she knows if you would just pick up those clothes. Why can't you get the dirty clothes in the hamper? Why do they just get close to the hamper? Things like that. She knows all that stuff. She lives with that every day, poor girl. Do we have that intimacy with God the Father? Because he knows all. He, he, there, there isn't anything he can't see in the house of your life. The question is, have you surrendered them to him? Are you posting guards at the door hoping you can hide some things from him? He wants that kind of intimacy and he's praying for that. And that intimacy comes by believing in him that once we trust in Jesus Christ, not just the words and the works, but in the person of Jesus Christ, we're growing in obedience to him, that he comes in and we have this intimacy with him. And our prayer life is an expression of that intimacy. Our worship is an expression of our intimacy with him, that we long for it. What are you missing right now for the last two months? Generally, what the world is missing is intimacy. You have no contact with people. If you think you've got it bad, imagine the people that are in hospital beds right now, that are in nursing homes right now, that are in other places that are closed down right now where they're not allowed to go in. They're allowed to receive visitors. They're truly isolated. It's horrific. It's perhaps the most diabolical thing about this whole thing is isolating these people while they're dying so they can die completely without any intimacy in their life at all. That I, as a pastor, can't walk into a church and say, or I'm sorry, into into a hospital and say, I am essential. I am essential. Because these people need to hear the gospel because they are dying. The world says, no, no, that's not essential. They don't need that kind of intimacy. It's too dangerous. Never mind the danger of passing eternity without an intimate Christ in your life. Intimacy is part 
of the human it's part of what we need. It's how we are made. It is not good that man should be alone. And God understands that and says, I'm going to be intimate with you. And so when we look at this oneness, let's, not, let, let's just get away from this whole ecumenism because that's not what Jesus was teaching. He was talking about a oneness between you and God that focuses with God's people on righteousness, on the truth, on worship, uh, on... <laughs> on sacrifice, on attitude, but also in intimacy with God. We are here sharing in the intimacy of God. And that's why eating together is part of worship, because that is an intimate act. You ever think about how intimate it is to eat with somebody? That is, I mean, you're sitting there at the table, and they're putting stuff in their mouth that you handled and prepared, and then you put it in front of them, and they put it in your mouth. That's about as intimate as it gets. For a lot of people. Makes you kind of wonder about going to restaurants, doesn't it? Oh, I'm intimate with that person that made this. I don't even know who they are. Well, we would eat together. And then the whole process of eating, it's not a, it, it's kind of noisy and kind of weird. And if you have children there, it's just woo. Um, but we accept it because we have intimate time together. We can have com- conversation and intimacy eating together. And that's why it's a shameful thing for your family to eat in front of the TV. You're having your intimate time with the image. Oh, you should have intimate time with each other. And the meal time is that. And this is our spiritual meal time. You can snack throughout the week as much as you want, but this is our spiritual meal time as a family of God. And it should be precious. It should be essential to you. And you're evidencing that by being here. Well, that's the first thing. Oh, boy. And I even cut that one short. I'm not going to make it. I know that, that Mr. McKell told you I was going to finish this chapter today, but it's not going to happen. I even cut it short, and I'm still not in the last two. Let's at least touch on the next thing, because I want because I, I, I got to get through more than two verses. All right, verse 22. Verse 22, here you go. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are. And this is another aspect that God wants his glory upon you. And, and now he's talking about that. Remember, we talked about the glory being his presence in God. Get me back to that glory I had before in your presence. That was Jesus' prayer for himself. He's now going to pray that for you, that you would be able to be glorified with him. And this oneness is one of presence of physical presence, that let them be glorified as you have glorified me. Put that glory upon them. What you gave me, and he actually speaks in past tense, so that he has a full expectation of, it, of his prayer being answered. He prayed that at the beginning of this chapter, and he has full expectation that God the Father is going to receive that, because whatever you ask in my name, he'll give it to you. He now says, the glory which you gave me, I have given them, and he has given them access And so we have a mutual glory. We have an expectation of glory. Not our self being exalted by ourselves or in front of other people, but God exalting us into his presence. And this requires an enormous amount of work by God to give us this kind of glory. Not just the resurrection, but resurrection to life. And that, because all men are going to be resurrected, some to life and some to eternal death. Am I resurrected to die? Yes. Resurrected punishment. If 
Bible says that. All men will be resurrected. Some to eternal life. You want to be part of the first resurrection, the first resurrection, the one to life. So if you wait till after the first resurrection, it's too late. Make sure you're part of the resurrection of life. It's the first one. If that one passes you by, you're in trouble. So don't wait. We don't know when the resurrection of life is going to happen. It could be now. We don't know. But we do know that once the resurrection of life happens, in about uh, a few years, resurrection to eternal damnation happens. You miss that first one, and you say, oh, pastor told me the resurrection of life. Oh, wait a minute. I missed it. Take care of that. Believe in Jesus Christ through his word. So we have the resurrection of life. And certainly that's an aspect of it. But it's also that bringing into his very kingdom where we'll rule and reign, it says, with Jesus Christ. We'll be with him. Wherever I am there, you will be also. Where is Jesus Christ at? He's prayed, Lord, bring God, the Father, bring me into your, the glory I had before I came here. And so that's the very throne room of God. Who is going to be there with him? It's going to be us. He says, I have given to them what you gave to me. This is a phenomenal inheritance we have. We are one in an inheritance with Jesus Christ. We are called joint heirs in other passages with Jesus Christ. That is what he has, he has shared with us. He's that phenomenally wonderful big brother that shares everything with you. Okay? Now, most big brothers just take it from you, okay? Because they're bigger and stronger than you, and they just take it away from you. All right? I, this is all your kids. I've been watching you. I know you moms are great, but I've been watching your kids, and the older kids always take it from the little kids. And then they blame the little kid. He did it! Well, he can't say anything to defend himself, so it doesn't work in the nursery because I'm watchful. But I watch them take it from Jesus Christ is the perfect big brother. He shares everything he has with us. The glory that you've given me, Lord, I'm, or God the Father, I'm giving them. That means we'll be with him in his exalted state. And that is our future. We have one future, brethren. We have one hope, one calling. We have, we have one expectation. And while we can talk about degrees of, of suffering in, in uh, Hades, we can talk about uh, you know, Dante's circles of suffering, of, of what hell is like, um, we have one expectation of heaven, and that is the person and presence of Jesus Christ. The glory he has, he says, I want to share with these that you've given me. These that believe in me through the scriptures written by my followers. These 11. So we have that glory promised us. And again, all that the world may know, the world may know that you have sent me. Over and over again, as we live out these promises that God, Jesus Christ is praying the Father, give them this unity, give them this glory, and you should be living as citizens with an inheritance. And you live differently in that condition. When you are a prince, you live differently, don't you? Because you are next in line. And there is a glory there. Even though you're not the king, you are the prince. And there is an expectation, and it is evident. And there should be evidence in our lives that the world looks at and says, these people 
um, you could take away everything they own of this earth and it, it, they're still, you haven't ruined their dreams. Because we're not dreaming about this world. Our expectation, our glory, our anticipation is for one that cannot, that where thieves cannot break in and steal, where rust doesn't, and, and other things doesn't, it can't be corrupted. This is our hope. This is the glory that we anticipate and that we live for. And it cannot be taken away. If we truly have heaven as our objective in life, we really have the presence of God as our joy, as our hope, as our expectation, it will be evident to all around. Now, do we fail sometimes? Yes. I did that this week already, last week. This is a new week. That's great. I haven't done it this week at all. I'm so glad last week was over. It was a hard week. But we need to get, a, get our minds under control and realize, wait a minute, this world isn't my home. These things aren't my happiness. These aren't my joy. Even these people around me aren't that. My hope and expectation is Jesus in heaven. And we need to stop and recenter ourselves upon that on a regular basis, and God's word helps us do that. But ultimately, Jesus Christ says, I want to be one with you. I want to be intimate. The more intimate you are with Jesus Christ, the more intimate you are with God through the scriptures, the more you'll reflect it and it'll be evident and people will see it in your life. You won't even have to say a word. And that's why the Bible says, be ready. Be ready for what? Be ready for people to come and ask you the reason for the hope that is in you. Are you ready? To explain that to people? Maybe we're not ready to explain that to people because people don't see it in us and so they're never going to ask us that question. They have to see it in us before they'll ever ask it of us. And if we are not showing them the hope that we have of the glory of Jesus Christ being in the Father as that's what I'm living for, these details of life are just temporary and, and we'll get through them and muddle through them. But uh, I'm a, my, my hope and my intimacy is with God and people should see that and then come to you and say, what is this? Why are you so weird? My children have all learned to accept that as a compliment. Why are you so weird? Yeah, I call my kids weird all the time. You know, you're weird. Um, but they've understood that, that that's not normal by the world's standards. And we should be a weirdness. And is that weirdness because of our intimacy with God, because of our hope of eternity, because of our, our uniform behavior of righteousness, of our unanimity with the truth of God, that we have an impact on the world passively. That they will come to us and say, what is the deal with you? Why doesn't this get under your skin? Why doesn't this make you angry? Why doesn't this get you riled up? Why won't you rebel against your parents? Why won't you rebel against this? Why, won't, why, 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 why? They should be asking you constantly why. Why are you so weird? I don't mean because you, you know, have green hair or something like that. I'm talking about righteousness. They see these things, this oneness 
that they come in and they encounter a bunch of people from this church and they go, this church is weird. And I go, yes, we are. Isn't that great? I prefer it. I don't want to go along with the group. I want to go along with the son who has gone along with the father. And I want to go that direction with whoever will go with me. Whoever believes in Jesus through the word of the apostles. Will you travel with me? You got to take the first step of believing in Jesus Christ. Not just his words, not just his work, but his person. And then come into this intimate relationship with him. And then all these things Jesus has prayed are for you. And we can enjoy that together into eternity. Not just for this short walk we have here, but all the way into eternity. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you so much for your word. We know there's much more here, and we really only scratched it a little bit. But Lord, we have been convicted and encouraged, and as it should be. And we pray your spirit might continue to bring these verses and your prayer for us uh, forward in our thinking that it might uh, nag at us sometimes when we are chasing after things of the world too much, but that it might also comfort us sometimes when we are frustrated with the world and, and want to get to our home as soon as possible. Lord, we know that we have an intimacy with you and we don't always live like that. We all, sometimes we think we can tuck away parts of our life and hide them from you, but we know that's not true. We thank you for the way you've opened yourself up to us, and Lord, help us to more and more each day open our lives up to you, and that we might live for righteousness, for your truth, that we might not ever sacrifice those just to get along better with other people. And Lord, help us to be a a bright light, a bright light of righteousness and of truth that the world cannot help but be attracted to. That, that when they ask, and Lord, that they might ask, that we might give them enough reason to ask is our prayer, that they might ask for, about our hope. Lord, we pray your spirit might direct us to communicate to them your truth. Again, Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us, for the wonder of our salvation. And we pray that you might just work through us to reach many with the gospel in these last days. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.